2016 is going to be year of the story. Um, and we are going to jump into a series uh, looking at the Gospel of Matthew. Um, it's the first gospel uh, in the New Testament. Um, and we're going to spend a lot of time in there. It's going to be, uh, we may be the whole year. Um, and we may go into 2017 um, and still in the Gospel of Matthew. And I've encouraged my, some of my teachers here and some of my elders to be prepared. Read along. I want you to, to share through this story. Um, but all of us, we live a story. Whether uh, we subscribe to the Jesus way or not, we, we are all living out a narrative. Um, and tragically, if you are a Christ follower, more often than not, we let stories outside of God's story kind of dictate and shape our story. Um, so instead of letting God's story shape us, we allow culture to shape us or we allow fear, the story of fear to shape us, guilt, um, our past, perhaps, uh, a religion. We let religion shape us, uh, shape our story. And so in order to change that and to allow God's story to shape us, we have to find for ourselves our place in that story. And so we're going to read God's story together. The story was written down and we're going to read it and we're going to find our place in it. Um, you see, the people of Israel, they knew their story, their part in the story, that they were the chosen people of God. They knew their place, um, but they just weren't very good at living, living up to it. And so we come into the story a couple thousand years later and our place is not that clear. We know the story of God was, was handed down to us. Um, but for me, as a kid growing up in church, uh, that was poorly communicated to me. Uh, I, I would look at the Bible as this instruction manual, right? Like, like the, how to be a good Christian. And so for many of us at church, we, we look at the Bible that way. We look at it for just, just pieces and, and, and simple things. And some of us even take scripture as like a fortune cookie. And we, we want to open it up and see what it has for us. And we're like, ooh, I, I like that fortune. Or, or, oh, I don't like that one. Let's turn the page. And, and, and we do that. We pick and choose what parts we want. And we miss out on the fullness of the narrative, the magnitude of what God is doing through this story. And tragically, many Christians, we, we live our life on the surface of faith. We want to live on the surface and that's it. We don't want to go deep. We just want to stay on top of the water. We don't want to know what's down there in the depths and in, in, the, in the unknown. And when it comes to knowledge of a faith, surface living, we just want surface learning then. We don't want the richness and the fullness of God that requires work and, and time and, and getting more than just our feet wet. We want to skim the Bible, looking for those verses, right? Those verses that we can use to justify our lifestyle or the ones we can use to condemn the lifestyles of others. And I'm not sure that was the, the writer's intentions for writing all this stuff down. It was instead to tell us the story of God. To tell us who Jesus was and, and what was he like. Question for you. Uh, have you ever asked yourself or, or thought to yourself, now be honest. Have you ever wondered what it would be like, what would Jesus be like if you ever met him, right? Like if you ran into him at Ingalls where you run into everyone for some reason. But what would, what would he be like? You know, what would he look like? What, all those things. And because, wait, let's do this. Let's exercise. Close your eyes for a minute. Pretend you're walking down Ingalls, the Isle of Ingalls, and you... You run into Jesus. What does he look like? Just think for a second. What does he look like? What's he wearing? What's he doing? All right, back in. My mind slightly twisted. 
But I start to wonder, what if, what if there were some things about Jesus that were, that were disappointing, right? You know, what if he was nothing like I thought he would be or, or wanted him to be, right? Let, let's say we're, Jesus and I, we're, we're riding in the car together and he's like, you know, he's like, you mind if I plug in my phone and, and play some of my music? And, and he pulls out an Android and not an iPhone, you know? What if, what if that or, 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 or what if... What if his playlist had Taylor Swift on it? Or he's wearing skinny jeans, you know? Or, or what, if, what if God was left-handed, you know? Or, or worse, what if he was a vegan? You know, what if these things go through my mind? You know, what if he had this, like, this creepy voice, like, like Gollum, and he's like, well, come to my kingdom. You know I mean? What if he's just weird like that, you know? And I know normal people, we don't normally think like those in those ways. But we typically think that if I met Jesus... I'd love him, right? Because he'd be just like me. You know, we would, we would like the same things. We would drink the same kind of coffee. We'd like the same kind of music. He'd dress like me, whatever it is. And unfortunately, we bring Jesus into our culture and we make him just like us. He's carrying our flags, our politics. He looks like us, dresses like us. Let me tell you, that's the wrong way to go. Because honestly, if we get to heaven and he's just like you and me, I'm not sure I want to go in, right? You know, I mean, I'd be a little disappointed if he was just like you, some of you guys, right? You know, but what is he like? Who, who is this Jesus guy beyond my opinion, beyond Fox News's opinion, right? Beyond, beyond our ideas of God. Because if you're familiar with the story, the people of God, they had a king in mind. And when Jesus showed up, he was nothing like they wanted. So they rejected him and they ultimately killed him for it. So what is he like? And for that, we, we turn to scripture, specifically the, the gospels. These four books in the New Testament give us an idea. They paint a picture of who this Jesus guy was, how he lived, how he died, what he was about. And you and I are invited into relationship with this Jesus. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew Chapter 28, Matthew 28. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. First, let me, let me say this. I'm going to assume this morning that you guys don't know anything. All right, is that, is that okay? I, I, no, no offense, thank you. No offense, honesty. If you're sitting there saying, I already knew that. I already know that stuff. That's awesome. Well done. You, you paid attention in, in Sunday school. You, you've read theology books. You listen to podcasts of uh, preachers that are smarter than me. I, I, that's awesome. Th- thank you. But for the rest of us here who, who might not know everything, and those that do, it's important to be reminded of these things from time to time. So if you would, bear with me. We're going to do a lot today. The book of Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Um, compared uh, to the other three Gospels, Matthew is the most comprehensive record of the teachings of Jesus. So in other words, not just what Jesus did in these stories, but a record of what he said, what he taught. And Matthew's gospel ends with the last thing Jesus says to his disciples, and it's known as the Great Commission. So Matthew 28. A couple things that we're going to find here in this uh, Great Commission, and then we're going to start here, and we're going to finish, finish here this morning. Matthew 28, verse 18. says this, then Jesus came to them and said, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of age. Some things that we find in this great commission is this final declaration of who Jesus is and that the authority has been given to him. We see in here these final instructions that Matthew wants us to know that who, who we are and what we're supposed to do now. And then there's these like direction, this response of how we're going to do it and, and how long we should do it. And this is the heart of Matthew. This is the reason he set out to write his gospel. So with that in mind, I want to fill in some blanks. First, what is a gospel? Well, it's a form of literature. It's very different from the letters that Paul wrote to the churches or to people. It's very different than what John, uh, apocalyptic visions that he had as he wrote Revelation. The Gospels, they, they tell more than just a narrative story. They're more than a biography. They are proclamations of what God has done. They are the historical redemptive work God has done through Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are Gospels. They tell the story of the life death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now within those Gospels, there's a subcategory called the Synoptic Gospels. Maybe some of you have heard of that. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And synoptic is the Greek or Latin phrase for uh, seen altogether. The root word S-Y-N, uh, seen together. That these three Gospels tell the same story, but through the eyes of three writers. And only one of the three writers were actually present with Jesus. And we'll get back to that in a minute. But the word gospel, uh, it's eugelion, is what the, what the word means. It means good news. If someone was bringing the gospel, someone was proclaiming news that would change the life and conditions of those who were listening to it. This was a message of good news during times of war and times of battle. Someone would return from the battle with good news and they would stand on the wall of the city and they would proclaim out to the people that I have a message of good news. The battle has been won. I have for you today good news. It's news of victory. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John tell us good news. That Jesus Christ died for the sins of man. That we've been given a do-over in life. That salvation is based completely on what Jesus did and not what I can do. And this is our foundation as Christ followers. The gospel, the good news, the battle has been won. And be careful when you hear people add to it. Like it's the cross plus this gets you that. Our foundation is not religion. It is not a list of rules or moral principles. Jesus won the battle over sin and death. And that's good news. We are to live and walk in good news. And too many of us, we walk around defeated. But listen, victory is ours. Jesus already won the battle. The enemy is already defeated. Our job is that, like the gospel writers, to proclaim good news. That we must tell people that something has happened. That love wins. Love won. We all should have bumper stickers that say love wins. Right? And so by its very nature, it's evangelistic, right? It's telling others of something, that something Jesus has already done. Teaching ethics, morals, ways to live. 
That's not the gospel. That's a part of the gospel. But those are the response and the result of our response of the gospel message. Christianity is not a way of life. It's a proclamation of one man's life. That Jesus has done something that has changed everything. And so let me now tell you the good news that God has loved us. And that leads us to loving our neighbors. And that is the great commission. It's the first half of, of him saying this is who Jesus is. I'm declaring this is the king who has all authority. And then it's the second half of the great commission is our response to that. The instructions to obey. Okay, well, how were the gospels written then? There is this perception, and I, I had the same thoughts growing up, that some of us believe or we imagine that the Bible, specifically the gospels, were written by these guys who would follow Jesus around and they'd have like this pack of uh, uh, animal skins or scrolls and they would write down everything he said and did it as he did it. Like they were in the crowd and like, oh, that's a good one, Jesus. I'm writing that one down. Or like, slow, slow down, Jesus. I, I want to write this one down. You know what I mean? That, that vision we had. Well, that's not how it happened. These books weren't written, any of these books in the New Testament, weren't written for 20 or 30 years after Jesus had ascended to heaven. Some more than 50 or 60 years after the fact. Little, little history. Jesus, we know, uh, we come to know, understand that he died roughly 30 to 35 AD or, or CE. It's Anno Domine, the year of our Lord, or CE, common error. Some books have it different ways. In the 50s, Paul writes his books, his letters to the epistles, his letters to the churches. In the 60s, Paul, Peter, and James are killed. And in the 70s, you have the gospel of Mark is written. So Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, but it's not the first book in the New Testament written. It's not even the first gospel written. The book of Matthew wasn't written until nearly 80 or 90 CE. It's the same time Luke's gospel was written. And this is after Paul has already gone on all his missionary journeys. Paul has written all his letters to the church and to the, to the other uh, people that he wrote to. And churches, so in this, as Matthew's writing, churches have been planted. They, they're beginning to grow. The only problem is, is, at this time, the remaining eyewitnesses to Christ are dying or, or they're being killed. So it makes perfect sense to start writing some of these things down, right? You know, you know Christians are being persecuted. Eyewitnesses are being killed. Men like Matthew are beginning to write down this one story of Jesus. Well, why, why are they writing it down? It's a, it's a great question. Thank you. To pers- preserve the story, right? We need to get this right, you know. Matthew is going to die someday, so we better write it down. We got to tell the story to the next generation. We got to spread it outside the walls of the church. This wasn't to, we, we guys, we need, to, we need to write a Bible. You know, it's, 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 it's due at the end of the month. We got to get this thing down, right? And, and some of us have thought that way. The gospel writers, including Paul and the others, they didn't know, they weren't thinking, hey, we're writing down Holy Scripture that in 2016, these people are going to be reading. That's not what, they weren't writing prescriptions for 2016. They were writing down the story of God. But why four gospels? Why, why, some, why, why different ones? Each one records the same story. It's essentially the same thing. But God is going to use different personalities of these guys and the different experiences they each had to reach different audiences in different ways. Similar uh, to different news stations, right? Reporting the same story. 
from their perspective, their filters. The, the facts are similar. They're just a different angle because they're different writers. And so I want to do that real quick is I want to compare, contrast these gospels. So starting in Mark, it's the first of the four gospels written. Peter has been killed. Peter, if you know, um, was one of the apostles. Mark, or other name is John Mark, was not one of the apostles, but he would follow Peter around. And so Mark writes down what Peter has told him. And we're to believe that it's based on this report from Peter that because Mark wasn't present with Jesus. He's a young Christian who writes like a preacher or, or a motivational speaker. So Mark has this, this, this evan, uh, evangelist lifestyle. He's like the modern day Billy Graham or, or, or Matt Foley, you know, this motivational speaker. And so it's believed that he was writing to a Roman audience, right? So Mark's gospel is filled with these, these, this language of power and, and action and, and conquest that would appeal to the Romans because they love that stuff. Mark uses the fewest Old Testament quotes. Why? Well, Romans, they wouldn't relate to the Old Testament. That wasn't their story. When referencing Jewish customs, Mark goes into great detail to explain them. Why? Same reason. The Romans didn't know Jewish customs. There are an amazing amount of action verbs because Romans love action. Mark records 35 of the miracles that Jesus did, more than any other gospel. Why? Romans love power. There's no birth record in Mark. His gospel just starts with Jesus' baptism. Possibly due to the fact that Romans probably wouldn't have cared about the lineage of some servant carpenter. And Mark is also referred to and known as this idea of the servant king. Why? Romans love kings. But Mark would eventually show them that they would not like this type of king. And perhaps more proof of who he was writing to and who he was appealing to. Mark ends his gospel with a Roman centurion at the foot of the cross saying, Surely this is the Son of God. That Romans are to believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Then we go to Luke now. Luke, we're, we, we come to believe that is, is a medical doctor, right? We have any of those in the house? Medical doctors, a few of you? He was, he was a Gentile. He was writing as an educated doctor to uneducated Gentiles. And so his approach to recording the story is very different than Mark. He was a doctor, so he's investigating the truth. He was very careful with what he, what he researched. It's said that pastors see men at their best and lawyers see men at their worst. And doctors, well, they see men as they are. So Luke does his research. He interviews eyewitnesses. Why? Because Luke wasn't there. So Luke tells us facts. He's writing it investigated, uh, as an investigating reporter, giving us uh, details of what happened. And we know that over one half one half of Mark's gospel is in Luke. And so it's believed that Luke and, and, and even Matthew used Mark, his gospel, as a source of their writing. It was combined with that of what they call this other source of writing known as the Q. So being a doctor, Luke pro, uh, portrays Jesus as the son of man, fully human, fully God. And it's the humanity of Jesus that Luke is focusing on in his gospel. In Luke's gospel, the genealogy goes back all the way to Adam, the first man. 
And Luke's intention is to show us that Jesus is now the new and improved Adam, the last Adam, and everything we're designed to be as humans. Then we go to John. Now, John is a completely different gospel than the other ones. John is this theologian, and so his angle is to communicate the deity of Christ. John is believed to be a Jewish Christian writing to the Greeks, and these Greeks are, are deep thinkers, right? So he's writing as a theologian, not as an investigator like, like Luke or, or a preacher like Mark. See, Mark says, you know, look, Jesus did this amazing stuff. Jesus is Lord. Luke says, I'm a doctor, so this is my diagnosis of the Son of Man. And John, the theologian, the thinker, he says, I'm going to prove to you that Jesus is the Son of God. Because in the beginning, the Word was God. And the Word was with God. Jesus was always. He created everything. He doesn't do any parables. There's no exorcisms in there. It's just a bunch of declarations that I am God. And his purpose of writing is in the 20th chapter of John. Purpose was to strengthen. Strengthen the faith of the believers and to inspire others to believe. Chapter 20, verse 31 says this, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So those three gospels are accurate portrayals of Jesus, just just different. And so now we're we're in Matthew. And this is how we're going to spend the rest of our time together. Matthew, we're going to walk through this for the next year. I'm going to spend a little bit of time introducing him. Two purposes, two, two audiences that Matthew was writing to. First was he wanted to defend or he wanted to communicate the authority of, of Jesus Christ. This was an apologetic style. That this was the promised king. This was the Messiah you've been waiting for. That you've been expecting since the garden. The one who would come through Moses and through David and the prophets spoke about him. And so as a Jew, to reach the Jews, he was arguing that Jesus was the Messiah. And over 16 times you find this, this, this term or this phrase, this was to, f- to fulfill what, uh, what the prophets had said. And so that was used uh, similar to that throughout, the, throughout Matthew's gospel. In uh, chapter 26 of Matthew, verse 55. Is this in the hour Jesus said to the crowd, I am leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me. Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching you, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. This is Matthew trying to fulfill the first half of the Great Commission. That this is the guy, this is the guy that the world, not just the Jews, but the world was promised. And the second purpose was to teach, to record what Jesus did and what Jesus said. See, Matthew is the first, he's a, the, the Christ follower who is writing to other Christ followers. And this is the first collection of writing that uh, emphasizes the direct teachings of Jesus. And the churches would use this as their handbook 
And 60% of the gospel of Matthew is the direct words of Jesus. If some of you have a Bible that has red letters in it. And often you hear things like when he was finished saying these things. Matthew uses that term a lot. You find the most comprehensive record of the Sermon on the Mount. The gospel that Matthew writes is designed to instruct the people of God about the person of God and to teach Christ's followers the things that Jesus taught. So it was Matthew's attempt to fulfill the second half of the Great Commission, to go and make disciples. So the first half of the Great Commission is filled. Here's proof that, he is, uh, that this is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, has all the authority on heaven and earth that has been given to him. The second half is, now go and make disciples with it. And then the last half is to teach them all that I've commanded. This was Matthew's purpose in writing. So who is Matthew? Well, we read about his call to follow Jesus in Matthew chapter 9. But turn with me to Luke chapter 5. We're going to read about the same moment. uh, And it should be familiar with you because we went in depth with it in the fall. But uh, Luke chapter 5. You have Jesus. He's in Capernaum. It's an area of Galilee. And he just got done healing this other guy. And he's walking down the road and he walks past a tax booth and he sees a guy named Matthew there. Well, what's a tax collector? Well, here's how it worked during during that time. If you were a tax collector or a tax gatherer, Rome was in charge of of all these countries in the area. Um, But it was hard. It would have been a lot of work to send people from Rome to collect taxes all year long and to bring them back. So what would happen is people from those areas were allowed to purchase the tax rights for that area. And they would pay Rome a certain amount of money, and then they would have Roman authority to go now and tax those areas that they lived in. But these guys were corrupt, right? They had Roman authority, but they would collect taxes, but then they would keep a fraction for themselves. And these guys being from that area and now collecting taxes from these people were viewed as traitors to those people. They had their own classification of sin, right? We hear it all the time that there were sinners and then there were tax collectors, right? I mean, they were worse than sinners. Jews, they hated, they despised these people. It's in the Talmud that it's encouraged for these people to despise these tax collectors. And the Talmud was a collection of rabbinic writings that the Jewish um, people would learn in school. And so they were taught to despise tax collectors. There were two types of tax collectors. More information for you. The Gabai and the Mokes are two different kinds of tax collectors. And I'm just, this is what I read this week. And so I, I probably mispronounced those words. But the Gabai was the general tax collectors, right? They would tax the income and the property tax. Um, and so that was necessary things. Things um, People weren't really bothered by that. There were still taxes. We still didn't like them. But they, we understood those taxes. But then there was the Mohex. Uh, they found reasons to tax everybody. Right? They, they often made up things like you know, the imports and exports and the road tax and the bridge tax. And you name it, they would add taxes. This is similar to the story I was watching uh, um, the cartoon Disney Robin Hood. Right? And this is like the sheriff of, of Nottingham coming around and collecting taxes from the little kid at his birthday party. Right? Or just making up taxes. Right? And so people hated these kind of people. And so you got Matthew the tax collector in Galilee. This community of farmers and fishermen and, and just common folk. And he's despised by everybody. And he's purchased the right to, to tax these people. Or he, or he works for someone who has possibly Zacchaeus. 
But Matthew is sitting at his post along the roadside when Jesus walks by. And I'm going to close with this and I want to launch us into this series of the Gospel of Matthew. So Luke chapter 5. Verse 27. It says, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi. And so that was another name that Matthew went by. Sitting at his tax booth, follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. And then Levi had a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were sitting with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to the disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Why would Jesus pick this guy? Because these are the type of people God uses. The underdogs, the outcasts, the outsiders, tax collectors were religious outcasts. They were forbidden to enter into the church. They were forbidden to worship at the temple. Who does that describe in today's culture? If you know the story in Luke 18, you have the tax collector and the Pharisee at the temple, right? And the Pharisee is in the church and he's holding the hymnal. But the tax collector, it says, stood at a distance because he wasn't allowed in. These guys were not allowed in the church. Their sin was, was too great. And the tax collector beats his chest and says, God, forgive me, a sinner. And the Pharisee looks out the stained glass window and says, God, thank you, I am not like him. Why would Jesus invite this guy to follow him, to be one of his disciples? Why would Jesus even want to be seen with this guy? Why would it be in the Bible? Why would Matthew get to write a gospel? Why would Matthew even choose to follow Jesus? Matthew was a tax collector. He had power. He had wealth. He wasn't liked. But why would he follow a homeless guy that had no credibility? And it says that he gets up. And he leaves everything to follow Jesus. And Jesus goes to his house. And it's Matthew, the tax collector, throws this feast for Jesus. And Matthew is showing us how to live out the Great Commission. How? Well, it's... It's in who he invited to the party. The tax collectors and sinners. People just like him. Is that your desire for 2016? Is that your commitment to your faith to invite people just like you? See, everyone was confused. They were bothered by Jesus' choice. Why this guy? Why, why Matthew the tax collector? was because Jesus had a strategy. Jesus knew Matthew better than anyone. That all of his knowledge, all of his skills, all of his connections, all of that that God had given him, Jesus knew ultimately would be used for the kingdom of God. And how or why is that important? It's so important that it's a gospel and we're still reading about it. This is a big deal. That Jesus took someone just like you and I and transformed their life. And what's really cool is 
Matthew, Matthew doesn't hide his past. He doesn't fail to mention it. He doesn't forget to tell us where he came from. You see, when the disciples are listed in the, in the other gospels, in Luke and in Mark, it reads just the 12 names. That's it. In Matthew's gospel, the only time that you see this list, that Matthew lists, he says, Matthew, the tax collector. You should not be ashamed of your past because we all have a past. And you don't want to forget where you came from because God is not glorified in what is hidden and what is forgotten. God is glorified when we proclaim what he has done and that was Matthew's gospel. Look, I was Matthew the tax collector and Jesus invited me to follow him and now I'm proclaiming good news. And thus, revealing the power of Jesus. And so our hope as we go through this series, and Matthew's hope as he writes down his gospel, was to proclaim that Jesus was the promised king. That the promise was fulfilled and Jesus was the one who would save us. And then Jesus sends us. He has all the authority and he commands us to go. And our job as a church... Is not to go tell people what you can and cannot do, how you should live, or make judgments on, on how they encounter God. That's not our job. We are to proclaim what God has done. Tell our story, your story, my story. Matthew was telling his story, the story of God and, and his part in it. And we say, look, look how God has done this. Look how God has forgiven. Look how he has served. Look how he has given. Look how he has loved. Look what he taught. And the kingdom of God breaks through, not just when we proclaim what God has done, but when you and I, when we live it out. It's more than gathering on Sundays to worship. This place is a place where we can find healing. We can find encouragement. Where we can experience love. Where we can belong to a community. Because the battle has been won. Now go proclaim it by living it. And so this begins our journey to the story of Jesus told by a tax collector. Join me in prayer. God, as we enter into 2016 and we enter into your your word, use it. Use it to transform our lives. Just like you did with a tax collector thousands of years ago. Transform our lives today. Speak through your word, through our reason, through our experience, through our community, as we serve and give and love and journey together. Let us not be ashamed of our past or what's happened or where we came from. May we proclaim instead what Jesus has done and how he's transformed us to go forward and proclaim the good news that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead and we are united with him And that he will return and we will spend eternity with him. And that's good news. God, thank you for the story that we enter into and we get to tell our place in it. In your name we pray, amen.